you're downtown sipping champagne with your high-class white friends, don't forget this glorious environment which molded your character. Don't forget your roots. <laughs> don't forget 127th Street. Don't forget your happy Harlem home. Don't forget 127th Street. No siree, there's no slum like your own. I remember winter evenings at that window Watching those evictions in the snow Oh, no joke, don't forget 127th Street A little bit of heaven wherever you may go Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 13th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Michael, this week you sent me along this wonderful Stars in the House tribute to Harvey Evans. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, it really was wonderful. Seth Rudetsky and James Wesley did a beautiful tribute to Harvey with two incredibly special guests, Cheetah Rivera and Sandy Duncan. Um, and you can only imagine the stories uh, that those two women had. And uh, Seth also dug up um, various wonderful clips and photos of Harvey's career, uh, including, um, I know it was one of Harvey's favorite, personal favorite clips. Uh, he got to do the, um, who's got the pain, the Mambo number mm. from Damn Yankees on television with Gwen Verdon. Uh, and that, that was in the, that was in the show. So that was amazing, but lots of other wonderful stuff. Um, Sandy, of course, worked with Harvey in the boyfriend, the revival of the boyfriend, uh, in which they walked away with the reviews uh, for that production. Uh, it didn't last very long, but but they both were very, very well reviewed. And she, um, honestly, she, uh, she almost started crying twice during the Stars in the House tribute. Harvey was so beloved. Uh, basically, I think Seth at one point said, uh, and the two women agreed, you can't, find anyone to say anything negative against him uh and you know how often does that happen and cheetah it was uh, it was amazing she couldn't immediately remember if she had ever actually worked with harvey uh even though they were they traveled in exactly the same circles and they they knew each other very very well and i think it was seth who came up with the uh, fact that he thinks that they were actually on the judy garland show together <laughs> uh, because harvey used to dance on that show uh but um cheetah may not have worked directly with him uh anyway uh it was it was a really wonderful tribute and i was so glad that that james and seth did it uh and he he really was yeah as i said he really was beloved and it's it's amazing when you look at his body of work he's he always was proud um to be called a gypsy when that term was still acceptable um and he was primarily but he did you know he did some 
really major uh, featured and sometimes even leading roles in various productions. So it was a wonderful theater career, really a kind of an exemplary theater career, I would say, for the, you know, from uh, musical theater and sometimes non-musical theater in the 20th century and and some of the 21st century. Um, so, uh, again, th- thanks to James and, and to Seth. And I really enjoyed it and was so happy to see that they gave that time to Harvey. Yeah, they, of course, uh, uh, most, if not all of the stars in the house are posted on YouTube. So the full hour tribute is on YouTube. We'll have a link to that in the show. Yes, well. yes, yeah. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is a theater journalist who writes the blog Broadway and Me and hosts Broadway Radio's podcasts Stagecraft and All the Drama. She has twice served as a Pulitzer Prize juror. Hello, Jan. Hi. So, Jan, yesterday in our uh, our Broadway Radio feed, we had the most recent uh, Pulitzer Prize the play that you covered, which uh, answered the question, which is more important, corn muffins or justice? <laughs> yeah. So, of course, uh, it's the 1932 Pulitzer Prize winner of The I Sing. Uh, so please uh, get over to our feed and take a listen to that if you haven't already. Jan, I love this series, and we are coming up on a milestone, aren't we? Yeah, a full year. I'm I'm sort of stunned wow. yeah. <laughs> by, by that. And... Uh, um, to, I guess, commemorate the year I decided to finally tackle um, one of the plays, and it's the first one uh, that Eugene O'Neill won uh, the Pulitzer for. Eugene O'Neill won four Pulitzers over uh, his career, and he is the only American playwright to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, so, So, you know, he sits obviously at the top of the Pantheon. And his first uh, Pulitzer win was for the play Beyond the Horizon. And um, it was also his first full length play. So right out of the gate, uh, he, you know, makes his mark. And this play doesn't get done uh, very much. It's, it's a, it's a difficult play to stage, but uh, the, uh Eugene O'Neill Foundation out in California did a production last uh, fall and the director, the artistic director of the foundation and the director of that production uh, will be talking to me uh, about his production and just about the play and just about Eugene O'Neill. This is something that I, I, I can't believe it's been a year already. Uh, since, since, you know, uh, you came to me and said, I have this idea and here we are a year later and, and all these shows in, in the box, they're just so wonderful, Jan. Thank you for oh, sharing you. it with us. Thank you. So uh, Peter is in uh, New Mexico right now. His hmm. uh, annual pilgr- pilgrimage to New Mexico to uh, sit in the muds. No, he's not doing that. <laughs> he's <laughs> he's uh, speaking in New Mexico this weekend, and he uh, obviously is not going to be with us today. And it is my fault. He tried a number of times to record trivia with me pre-recorded ahead of time, and uh, our schedules just didn't line up. So we won't have trivia trivia this week but we'll uh get back to it next week of course because i got the answer oh <laughs> did, well, did, did they confirm did he confirm that it was the answer um 
Uh, I I believe so. Yeah. Did he confirm it? Okay, you know, because very often I think that I get the answer, and and he sends me. Oh a, yeah, yeah. He no, sends it me. He sends me an email that says regrets. You know, <laughs> regrets. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first up, let's talk about um, New York Theater Workshops production of On Sugar On Sugarland. Uh, Jan, you got down to uh, see it. Uh, so tell us about this. Uh, this is uh, the new play by uh, Aisha Harris, and people may recognize her name because of her play, What to Send Up When It Goes Down, <laughs> uh, which was first done at ART in 2018, uh, and then has just been done and done and done. Uh, it was done twice uh, in uh, New York. Uh, last year, once I think out at BAM, and then again at Playwrights Horizons. And uh, Harris is certainly, I was going to say an up and coming, but I think she's here, Mm -hmm. playwright. Uh, She's certainly a playwright to keep an eye on. Uh, She's very talented. um, And she's interested in the whole concept of theater as ritual. And uh, if you saw what to send out when it goes uh, down, you will know that that play really was a ritual. And this play, which is much larger, much more ambitious, uh, it has a lot of ritualistic elements as well. She has said that the jumping off point was a play by Sophocles, called, I think, um, Philoctetes, um, which is not a play I know or had heard of, and probably I'm not pronouncing correctly either. <laughs> but it's, um, it's a play about an archer who was exiled from the Trojan War. This is the uh, Sophocles play, uh, yeah. because of the smell of a wound on his foot. And she transposes that part of that to what seems to be the present. And we are in this community of people where there is a war going on. It's not really clear where this community is, where the war is, what the war is. It could be a real war as you know in the Iraq war or some of the more recent wars we we've we've had uh uh US involvement in or it could be a metaphorical war against black people um it's not clear exactly which it is we look at the effects of this war through three families who who live in this sort of trailer park uh, uh, area. Keeping up the theme of uh, her paying homage to Sophocles, there's a Greek chorus or a a sort of chorus. She uh, calls them uh, the rowdies in her, her script. They do dancing and singing. There are some uh, real rituals where people are communing with uh, uh, the dead. Um, she, in addition 
to, as I said, this whole concept of rituals, she wants to take a look at um, what fighting, what what this constant effort to uh, wage this war, be it real or metaphorical, what it how it damages uh, the the people who have to um, fight it. The play is three hours, which is very long, um, but lots of it, and uh, and a lot of it is messy. And um, but there are some brilliant speeches in it. The acting, uh, I didn't care for the rowdies. I I, I would have push them off to the side. But the main principal actors are uh, really, really uh, excellent. Um, a young girl whose mother has died in the war, the soldier who has returned from the war with a foot wound, um, uh, and these two sisters, uh, older women, who uh, one of whom has lost a son uh, to the war, um, they're all trying to just go on, just continue. Um, I don't know if I'm making this sound as um, urgent and interesting as it is, but it is. It uh, The production, the run ends uh, next Sunday, March 20th. And if you can, I would urge you to see this. Uh, I think it may be difficult to see because it was pretty sold out um, when I uh, went to see it. Um, and she, again, is a playwright whose work you're going to want to be familiar with. I think, over the course um, of the next few years. There's also a really uh, excellent uh, uh, profile piece of her in uh, The New Yorker. And I can send you that link, James, if uh, you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, Let me just say, I don't don't know either how to pronounce Philoctetes or... (laughs) But uh, I see, I think we read it in college. I wish I could remember how the professor pronounced it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're one up on me. At least you read it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but I cannot remember. That that was amazing when you brought it up because I hadn't thought of it since then. You know, it's not exactly produced, you know, that often. <laughs> right, it's no Antigone or something. Like it's that. no Antigone. Yeah. <laughs> but what is an Antigone? <laughs> you know? um, so I'm looking at the New York Theater Workshop website, and uh, there are sporadic tickets, you know, 10, 15 seats here and there for each of the performances left, but sh- surely that'll fill up. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's not... Uh, It's not an impossible ticket to get, but you should get on that right away if you are going to get down there. Um, We had big news from New York Theatre Workshop uh, this week, didn't we? Uh, We have uh, our our Daniel Radcliffe is doing Merrily We Roll Along there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Try to get your tickets now, but... Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, again, uh, I... I'm not sh- I'm not 100% sure of this but uh I I think that the uh there uh you have to get a season New York Theater right. workshop yeah uh, yeah a season ticket to New York Theater workshop in order to really guarantee that you're going to get into uh merrily everybody wants to buy singles but they're not available right um 
So a and, very uh, small theater. <laughs> it's a very, very, but you know, and uh, we're we're hearing already. I mean, it was just announced this week, but we're hearing already that it's planned to do a transfer. So, uh, oh, what a surprise! Yeah, shocking. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and um, so you know, be aware of that, that on the horizon there in the twenty two twenty three season. Uh, we'll finally get to see another production of Merrily. Uh, On a related note, does anyone know if there has been any announcement of what, if anything, is happening recently with the film version? Because I guess they're still doing it. Yeah, I, I know, but I meant but like specifically because I think that I believe they said they had filmed, they had started. This is mm-hmm. the film version mm-hmm. that was to be done over a period of twenty years. Yeah, um, yeah. with Ben Platt. Uh, uh, in the in the Daniel Radcliffe role, um, uh, but um, but aside from everything else, uh, the the original Frank Shepard has since had a uh, accusation of you know a pretty serious Me Too accusation. So some people are speculating that they might wow. have to replace him and mm. start all over again. Mm. Wow, that would be uh, yeah. <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. But um, that show, <laughs> it's, you know, it's um, it's amazing when you think uh, when they did the when they did the reunion concert, the twentieth year reunion concert. Mm-hmm. I think um, I got to interview uh, Ann Morrison, actually, who was the original Mary Flynn, and she said, but uh, but also Jim Walton has said, and uh, like Eslani Price has said. Um, you know, the, the last time we did that show, you know, before that, you know, the last time we did it on Broadway, it was this incredible flop and people were walking out in the middle of the performance and it was viewed as the end of Sondheim's career and maybe Hal Prince too. And it was just a tremendous, you know, failure. And now people are standing up screaming. <laughs> Uh, and uh you know uh, and that's uh, aside from everything else it's a real testament to original cast albums uh because people just grew to love the score so much and uh hmm. i think they also grew to love the story even though it's very flawed uh so uh there's so much it's a case where there's so much good in it that people are very willing to overlook the problems and uh will be interesting to see how new productions address it so michael what you're saying is that the uh <laughs> the creative team behind getting the band back together has a future well, I, you know, I think we, we just, you know, history is uh, sometimes uh, doesn't go the way we, we think it's going to go. <laughs> it's not going to go that way. No, it's not going to go that way. <laughs> okay, excellent. All right. So, um, Michael, uh, uh, you know, we hadn't planned on talking about Merrily here, but it just it triggered my head. But why don't we talk about Anyone anyway Could Whistle? Because uh, you went over to Carnegie Hall to uh, see the One Night Only concert. Damn them One Night Only concerts. Yeah. Please tell me. I, I understand that. Uh, how many seats are in Carnegie Hall? 2,700, 2,800. 2,700, 2,800. So I yeah. think that there's about 2,700 bootleg recordings of it. <laughs> uh, so tell me, uh, did you see anybody doing a pro shot? Um, you know, I didn't look for that, although I was sitting in literally the last row of the orchestra 
on house left immediately in front of the guys running the sound uh but i didn't i didn't specifically look for for a pro shot i don't think that uh they really have the mechanism for that this is the master voices group which used to be called the collegiate corral yeah mm-hmm. uh and i just don't think they're set up for i also i'm just trying to think when's the last time you actually saw anything uh from carnegie hall they don't seem to do that do they well, uh, i see orchestras um I, like on, on, t- PBS, on, t- on, on pbs don't they do uh, um something? i get I guess, yeah, I guess sometimes on PBS there are occasionally, but it seems like far fewer than all the Lincoln Center theaters, you know. Mm. Uh, Anyway, um, so many people have asked about whether there will be a video or an audio recording. And I, I, of course, I have no idea. I haven't heard either way, but we'll see. It was packed. It was packed to the point where it started about 20, 20 minutes late. Uh, because they had trouble getting everyone in, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with the vax checks and everything and bag checks. Uh, And it was really great to hear the score played so well by a really excellent orchestra under Ted Sperling. Um, He also directed, I, I, I guess I'm one of the people who thinks that maybe, maybe it would be better if he doesn't, always try to do both um uh but also it's of course it's so difficult to stage anything uh especially there in a case like that where you have most of the stage taken up by the orchestra and there's very little room relatively little room for movement and dancing uh so, but everyone there you know of course uh, the, the, I guess maybe the first big Sondheim event since the pandemic, unless you count company, uh, which certainly I think also has benefited from that. All the acolytes were in the audience and that's a lot of acolytes. So it's a good thing they did it. (laughs) It's a good thing they did it at Carnegie hall because, you know, as, as it was, I'm sure a lot of people didn't get in and it was, uh, uh, it was very, you know, a, a very, uh, uh, a very enjoyable performance of a very, very, very problematic show with four or five incredibly great songs in it. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. how I always describe it. Um, Santino Fontana as Hapgood and uh, Elizabeth Stanley as Faye, uh, who Elizabeth was on our podcast just a couple of weeks ago uh, they were real standouts in those roles uh, Vanessa Williams was uh, arguably the biggest drawing card and she was just fine and looked absolutely beautiful and sang very well but I always think that um, she always seems to come across as somewhat underpowered on stage and I think I would be willing to bet it's just because she doesn't do stage regularly. Uh, You know, she certainly has her stage credits, but I think she's um, so much more involved in film and TV that uh, that perhaps that accounts for the fact that she just doesn't quite have the stage presence and energy uh, of some of the other people like Santino and and Elizabeth who do theater constantly. Um, so she was just fine. Uh, not, nothing special, certainly not a, a detriment. And um, as I said, the orchestra played beautifully. Uh, Elizabeth really really arguably has two of the 
well, three of the, the, the best songs in the show, two solos, there won't be trumpets and anyone can whistle. And then uh, what's a little to be sure of with Santino. And she really just was phenomenal. I think um, I'm so glad she got to do this as she discussed when uh, she was on the podcast with us. She, um, well, you know, I mean, of course everyone was, sitting at home because of the pandemic but she also had a baby um so now <laughs> now she uh now now i guess that's at the point where she can actually begin to start performing again and it was a great a great re-entry into the world of new york theater and music uh so bravo brava for her it really really was really just super so anyone could whistle the Master Voices concert at Carnegie Hall. It was one night only, March 10th. Uh, hopefully we will, um, uh, you know, somebody will have pulled a rabbit out of a hat and said, hey, we have a pro recording off the board and we're going to release an album or something like that because it was just 2,600 seats, 2,800 seats, whatever it is, just mm -hmm. not enough to get everybody in. So many people wanted to go. Right. All right. So, uh, Jan, you got down to the vineyard. Uh, I always wonder, uh, do they have a, a great bar at the Vineyard Theater? Because it always seems like they should have good wine there or something. Like <laughs> I don't that. think they have a bar at all. <laughs> they got to no. get on that. I mean, please. I mean, the Schubert's are making millions of dollars on uh, on uh, uh, $14 white wines at the back of the theater. So... Uh, <laughs> But you saw sandblasted at the yes. vineyard. Yes. Um, did they have any sandblast machines that you could play with in the intermission? They had a lot of sand. <laughs> they had a lot of sand. So tell us about this. The, the stage at the vineyard is just covered with uh, sand. Um, this uh, play is by uh, Charlie Yvonne Simpson. And uh, she is playing a little bit she sort of merged two beckett plays in a way uh because uh the play closes today uh march 13th so i don't think i'm going to be spoiling uh anything it opens with these two women <laughs> popping up out of the sand and it's sort of you know happy days um and then uh because it's these two women and they don't they keep talking about going somewhere, but they don't actually go anywhere. Uh, so there's a little, you know, uh, nod to uh, waiting for Godot. Um, <laughs> her play, it's it, it's solely it, it's uh, firmly in the absurdist uh, area because it's about black women falling apart and within the first five minutes of the play the arm of one of the women drops off so it is a literally they are literally falling apart and in this absurdist world that she's created these two women are trying to their names are angela and odessa and they are trying to find a cure uh, so that they don't continue to lose body parts. Um, they, 
have traveled to this place where there's a lot of sand uh, because it's run or owned by this woman named Ada. And Ada is sort of an Oprah-like figure. She's an older uh, uh, Black woman who has become a celebrity. And part of uh, the reason for her celebrity is that she has gotten to the age she is, which seems to be somewhere in her 60s, without falling apart. She has all of her body parts, and they're trying to find out the secret uh, to being able to withstand the pressures of the world and not fall apart. Um, I am a big fan of uh, Charlie's because not just because we share the same last name, um, but mm-hmm. because <laughs> um, her last play between the line. Uh, I'm sorry, behind the sheet. I think it was uh, maybe three, four years ago, was a wonderful play about really about the birth of gynecology in this country. Um, The doctor who innovated techniques, many of them, which we use today uh, by practicing on enslaved black women. And uh, that was a very powerful, very naturalistic play. She is clearly interested in concerned about uh, uh, black women, the pain and suffering that they experienced. But um, when behind uh, the sheet ran, I did an interview with Charlie uh, for stagecraft. And she talked about the fact that she was increasingly uncomfortable with writing plays about trauma Uh, that Black women were experiencing because she felt as though she was maybe exploiting it, putting it on stage in this uh, dramatic, traumatic way. And so what I think she was trying to do here is to introduce comedy um, to make the same points, but in a less torturous kind of way. And it doesn't quite work. Um, I wish it did. Uh, the, the actors are, again, uh, really excellent uh, in their, their, their parts, but it's hard to balance this kind of pain and comedy. It obviously can be done. We've seen plays that do it, but it's a very delicate balance um, and she doesn't quite achieve it. Hmm. So we should say that this is a co-production between the WP Theater and the Vineyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you mentioned, it uh, closes today, uh, but I have links to everything in the show notes. Uh, both both websites have some good information there on the, on the production if you want to do some more research about that. Uh, Michael, you got over to the Cherry Lane Theater to see Coal Country, which is a uh, which is an audible production and the public theater production, um, a, another co-production. So tell us about this. 
Well, I got there by the seat of my pants because, <laughs> <laughs> as I mentioned before we started recording, um, this play, uh, it's now billed as Audible Presents, the public theater production of Coal Country. And uh, the show had been running when the pandemic hit, and I guess it was at that time at the public. And I got my press release and I responded and I and I um you know, it has the public written all over it. And so I was like, oh, it's at the public. But no, <laughs> I got I got to the box office at 640 uh, p.m. on Friday when I went to see the show. And I went up to the box office and I said, hi, I'd like a, I have a press ticket for cold country. She said, that's not at this theater. <laughs> um, so she looked it up for me and she mm -hmm. said the cherry lane so i was like okay <laughs> so fortunately it wasn't you know at the vivian beaumont um <laughs> so i ran out and i ran across greenwich village through washington square park uh to the cherry lane and got there just in time and i'm glad i did because it, it's a very powerful play uh by jessica blank and eric jensen um Along the lines of their their amazing uh, theatrical event, the Exonerated, in that it, it's based on firsthand reports, firsthand testimony. Um, in this case, about a horrible disaster in a coal mine in West Virginia, and all you know, completely, completely factual from actual. Uh, testimony and 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 statements that that all of the people, the survivors <clears throat> made uh, about this terrible terrible tragedy. Uh, if anyone who saw the Exonerated will know that how good Jessica and Eric are at putting together pieces of theater in the, in this form, and certainly this one uh, is very very powerful. Um, the cast is superb. Mary Bacon, Amelia Campbell, Steve Earle, uh, Ethelyn Friend, Kim Gomez, uh, Joe Young, Ezra Knight, Thomas Kopech, Michael Lawrence, Deidre Madigan, and Carl Palmer. And uh, uh, directed by Jessica uh, at the Cherry Lane, which is a very storied theater in itself. Uh, so I, I really recommend it. It's uh, uh, and it's perfect for Audible because um, there's not a whole lot of stage action uh, in the show. It's just all these people um, telling stories about their loved ones and, you know, what happened before, during and after this terrible tragedy and how they tried to seek justice for it. And what they received, uh, many people would probably not describe as as justice. Uh, so I, I really recommend it. It's uh, as, as you can imagine, just from my description of it, it's not easy uh, to sit through, um, but it's um, I think it's in a way it's cathartic uh, and really very, very worthwhile. If you don't catch it live, uh, I'm sure you'll be able to catch it through Audible. So Michael, isn't there, I, I, I think I saw this before the shutdown. Isn't mm -hmm. there a lot of music? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, the, the, one of the cast members has a guitar, uh, and he provides music throughout. Uh, and then at the very end, Mary Bacon sings a, a beautiful song. Uh, that's the first time she's, she, she's the only other person 
who sings throughout the show. Uh, but that was that was really great because I know her primarily as a as a non musical actress, and I didn't know that she had that talent as well. But yes, um, uh, the music is very much a part of the show. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right, so that uh, is Cold Country at Cherry Lane Theater. Make sure you go there through <laughs> April 17th. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So, Jan, you got over to uh, Theater Row, where you ran up to Theater 5. I think that's on the top floor. Uh, <laughs> and you saw The Space Between Us uh, by Keen Company. Tell us about this. It's uh, This Space Between Us by a playwright called Peter Gill Sheridan, uh, who uh, is new to me. Um, the, the premise of this play is there's a young guy, he's about to th- turn 35. He's uh, a, a corporate lawyer. He has a you know, very successful career. Um, he's very happily married. Uh, to his husband, who is a uh, magazine editor. Uh, He is the apple of the eyes of his mother and father. His father's Cuban-American, his mother's Anglo. They are uh, more working class than, than, than he, and so they're thrilled that their son has... Uh, you know, become uh, successful in a way that they were not able to. Uh, he has a best friend who uh, is a woman. She's an Asian American woman. Um, she too adores him. And he has an aunt who uh, his mother's sister, who is a nun who also adores him. So he's just in this bubble of success and adoration and he tells them that he's not happy uh uh he thinks that he could be doing more to make the world a better place and what he's decided to do is quit his job and take a, a much reduced in salary uh job at a nonprofit that does good work in africa and uh, as they're all shocked and dismayed, to be quite honest, and they try to, the, the play is basically, they're trying to talk him out of, out of this and trying to convince him that there are other ways to be um, a good person uh, in, in the world. And I think that's the theme that the playwright is trying to deal with. Um, but he he doesn't really get in there and and wrestle with it. I mean, he he poses things like, "Is it are you a good person if you say the wrong or what we now consider to be to to use what we consider to be the wrong language?" Uh, the father, the Cuban American father, uh, uses very non-PC or non-woke or non-acceptable language when talking about his uh, son-in-law, when talking about the Asian-American best friend. And yet he's a good guy. Or is he really a good guy? (laughs) The, the, The husband 
is a very serious uh, vegan because he wants to save the planet. He wants to, you know, you, you eat right, you um, watch how you use uh, the energy and so on. And yet he's given to going out and doing things like buying Cartier watches. Um, so how, how do you uh, uh, balance this? The nun, um, she's a nun. So she should be, you know, doing good works. And yet she has this sibling rivalry with her sister uh, that causes her to not be so nice. And so he's trying to figure out Again, what does it take to be a good person? But he throws in so much stuff and th- that he doesn't allow himself time to go deep to propose any answer or any possible answer. And uh, the show isn't well-directed, I'm sorry to say, um, uh, it's directed by Jonathan Silverstein, who's the executive director of the King Company, who I think must really seriously be the hardest working man in the <laughs> yeah. theater. Mm-hmm. I have never been to a production um, at Keene where he was not there to welcome the audience. And when I left, to say goodbye to the audience. <laughs> he is the executive of the artistic director of that company. So that comes with a lot of work. He directs a good number of their productions. This man is just working like crazy. So I'm not beating um, up on him, but he just didn't get a handle on this particular production. And a lot of his direction seems to involve getting furniture on and off the stage because there are all sorts of settings, including a racetrack. And so the actors are carting furniture on and off. Um, it's a, a there's a, a critic, uh, Jonathan Mandel. And, yeah. and Jonathan said, and I think this sums it up, and I hope you won't mind my um, uh, cadging on his, uh, his criticism, but but I'm giving you credit, Jonathan, if you're listening. <laughs> he says the play is more well-meaning than well put together. And I think that really does uh, sum up uh, this space between us. It's running through April 2nd. The King Company tickets are always fairly um, affordable. Uh, it's a, it's a, in, there's some interesting ideas. It's a, you know, it's a genial evening. I think that's sort of the best I could say. It's a genial evening. All right. Uh, you also got over to Irish Shrep to see A Touch of the Poet. Uh, so tell us about the t- A Touch of a Poet. Uh, this is, uh, uh, again, O'Neill. Um, this is one of Eugene O'Neill's uh, later plays, one of those plays that he wrote and was not produced within his lifetime. Um, when he died, uh, he left instructions that a number of these plays, the plays that we know best, I think, you know, Long Day's Journey, um, Moon for the Misbegotten, um, uh, were, he uh, asked that they be done 
I'm sorry, a certain number of years after his death, but his uh, widow decided uh, that she would break that trust Mm -hmm. um, and she would have of these plays um, produced. And, and, you know, we're grateful. We're grateful for uh, her decision. A Touch of the Poet is uh, a little different because it's not set during that turn of the century part of his life in which uh, uh, Alande's journey is. Mm-hmm. A Touch of the Poet is set uh, right at the time. It's it's the early 19th century. I don't have my history dates, but it's right around the time of Andrew Jackson's uh, election um, because much is made of that in the play. The main character is... Um, an Irishman who has come to uh, the uh, uh, U.S. His name is Cornelius Melody. Um, he's called Khan, and Khan was his family uh, was poor in Ireland, but somehow managed to accumulate wealth, and he has great pretensions to who he is and how he should be treated. But within the Irish uh, aristocracy, the family was never accepted. They were always looked down upon because of their humble uh, origins. He comes to the U.S. and he has his fortune and he is built out of it. He's persuaded to buy this inn this tavern where uh, he's told there's going to be a great deal of traffic routed by this tavern and uh, the people who sold it to him make off with his money, his fortune, and the traffic doesn't come. And so he's now the owner of this sort of rundown uh, tavern. He lives there with his wife, who is a lower class woman uh, who he, he married only because he impregnated her and he was forced to marry her and their daughter. And the play takes place over the course of uh, 24 hours where Khan, who puts on airs uh, with the locals and whose greatest memory is of uh, fighting with Wellington, um, uh, the British uh, 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 general, and uh, being honored by Wellington. We're not quite sure if that really happened in the way that he tells the story, he tells <laughs> the story over and over again. But over the course of this 24 hours, Khan is forced to reckon with who he really uh, is. It is, uh, you know, it's, of course, it's an O'Neill play, so it's a long play. This is done at the uh, Irish Rep, which obviously I think is a really fine uh, theater company. Um, uh, I thought it was well acted. Khan is played by uh, Robert Cuccioli. Um, I've read some reviews that say he was a little too dramatic for the part. This is a dramatic part. So uh, I thought, I thought he did 
a really fine job, actually, uh, of of this. The last time I saw um, uh, this play, um, uh, Gabriel Byrne did it on Broadway. Right. Uh, And I have to say, do you remember much about that production, Michael? Because it... I don't. I all I remember is Byrne sitting in a chair and it being sort of lethargic. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember much about it. But I'm not. I'm not uh, the world's greatest O'Neill fan, so I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> um, shame, shame, shame. Mm. I'm. <laughs> I know. I knew you would say that. <laughs> um, I. I wasn't so sure that I was up for this play when when I went, but uh, by the end, I was really glad that I had seen it, and um, and I want to encourage people to to go down and uh, and 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 give it a try. Uh, it's it's very. You know, it's very O'Neill. There, there are arias. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot, a lot of drinking. As people know, uh, <laughs> O'Neill had a serious, very serious alcoholism problem, and I think he wrote some. Uh, I don't know, fifty plays during his lifetime, and he tended not to drink when he was writing. And so I think part of it was that it was a way for him to Mm. stay off the drink, but he is so obsessed with drink that in his plays, people are just drinking so much that it, it just boggles the mind that if this were true, uh, you know, in real life, that they'd be able to stand up. But so there's a lot of drinking, a lot of beautiful language, a lot of um, uh, dealing with the issue of, 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 of class and of pride, I think maybe more than anything else um, in this pride. So again, I urge people to see it. There's a lot of drinking, even in O'Neill's one comedy, uh, Wilderness. Uh, right. hmm. <laughs> uh, the man's obsessed. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, it's incredible to, uh, to even phrase it this way, but what would O'Neill's life and artistic output have been without alcohol? Hmm. Um, mm. so much of it is about that. Uh, I mean, would it, right. would it have been, would he have written about so many other things? I mean, he doesn't write exclusively about alcoholism, but it is such a major part of every, almost every play. That's, mm-hmm. I never quite thought of it that way, Jan. <laughs> uh, well, I think, yeah, I think, you know, he was living vicariously through his characters. Sure. Um, uh, uh, when he was trying to stay off uh, 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 the source, as I was putting together the um, Beyond the Horizon uh, episode of All the Drama, I'm um, I was reading um, a recent biography uh, of O'Neill, and his binges are just. Mm. astonishing just yeah. astonishing and he really he would start off in the way you know that you know if you've ever been on a diet and you say <laughs> well 
I've been doing a good job. I'll just have, you know, a piece of cake. And then the next minute you look and, you know, you've had seven Sarah Lees or something. (laughs) And so he is, he's like that. He will say, I'll just have a drink or was like that. I'll just have a drink to be sociable. And then it's two days later. Yeah. He is totally gone, totally blacked out, totally gone. Um, It's it's a sad story, but you're right. I don't think, you know, we'd have the plays we do if if not for for that. No, well, certainly not as they are. Yeah. Yeah. Am I remembering uh, incorrectly that, uh, you know, Tennessee Williams also is very much focused on. Uh, you know, a, a, a different part of American society that drank a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I would say not as much. Yeah. Before we move on, we should probably mention that the Irish rep was one of the beneficiaries of Stephen Sondheim's estate. Yeah. Uh, and I know several people who were somewhat perplexed by that, not because we don't love the Irish rep, but just because uh, we couldn't understand what the connection was. And the only one I could think of, uh, the only special connection is that Charlotte Moore, who is the artistic director of the group, was married to John McMartin, Mm -hmm. who was in uh, Follies and, uh, and one or two other Sondheim shows. So I don't know if he, maybe he started going there uh, because of John and really liked what he saw. Uh, uh, I wonder if we'll ever find out, um, you know, if, you know, what exactly the motivation is there. Uh, Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but either way, uh, I think it's a a very worthy group. uh, And I'm glad that Sondheim remembered them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jan, uh, we uh, haven't. I, I went back and I looked. I don't think that you've spoken about Long Day's Journey and Long Day's Journey into Night, uh, the one that was just the audible one, the the condensed, uh, cut up version. Did you see that? I did. Uh, I did. And, and what did you think? You know, as 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 an O'Neill scholar, what did you think about that? Scholar, um, <laughs> <laughs> do not believe that. Um, um, I haven't even gotten through the biography that I'm reading. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, uh, I have seen Long Day's Journey a lot. I've seen a lot of productions of it. Uh, As everyone knows, this one updated it to the present, trimmed it down to uh, just over maybe an hour and a half, somewhere between, I'd say a hundred minutes, a hundred, 110 minutes. Um, it uh, makes direct comparisons or, or parallels to um, the mother's uh, drug problem is now an opiate problem. Um, just modernizing it. It was done in modern dress. It had a, a Elizabeth Marvel uh, as the mother. And I, uh, I wished as I watched it that I had seen her in a more traditional uh, production, Um, but she loves, um, you know, she's worked with uh, even Eva Van Hova. She really loves mixing it up with those sort of modernist uh, approaches. It was, it was an, It was an odd production, I guess. I was going to say it was an okay, but it was sort of an odd production. Um, uh, If you're used, 
if you're used to having seen it. I'm wondering if the fact that it is shorter, it is more contemporary, will bring in uh, new audiences uh, to O'Neill. Um, I don't know. But as you said, James, it's available uh, on uh, audio. There is also a really interesting New York Times article about the recording uh, of it. Uh, it was a non-traditionally cast uh, production. The sons were black. The parents were white. Obviously, it couldn't be that the sons were adopted because the mother's mm. Yeah. Drug problem starts with the birth of uh, uh, one of the sons. Um, uh, it, it, I may go back and listen to it on Audible because it may play differently than uh, seeing it, not just because of the non-traditional casting, but the 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 set was kind of strange. It was it was a very very modernist take on um, this uh, old play. Do you think that um, artistic directors start to regard O'Neill's work as they do with Shakespeare's, that they can, you know, rework it and put it in different places to uh, update it? I mean, are, I, are we going to see... I think we're seeing this period. I think, um, you, you, know, you know, part of the criticism, I think, in some corners for the music man was that it's just the music man. How, how is it speaking to today? And I think a lot of uh, directors uh, today and some audiences today are looking at these old classics and saying, how do they talk to us? And, and we want to have, have them talk to us directly. And, and so I think there's going to be a lot of um, not revisionist, but a lot of manipulation of these works in the way that, yeah, in the way that we do Shakespeare to say, how do we make this uh, contemporary? We'll see a long day's journey in tonight with uh, Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family in it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> well, the, now that their names are coming off museums and concert halls, they're they're probably looking for some place to go. Will Harold Hill ever be a, farm, a Purdue Pharma salesperson? Oh, wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> <laughs> so you had some thoughts about how Music Man uh, or maybe shows can just be enjoyable and we don't have to take them into their context. Well, I can't take any credit for that. That's That's been an ongoing debate and maybe even some of the people um, who are um, in our chat room have um, been participating in that because there are some people who are saying, uh, relax, this is just a great song and dance show. You've got two great entertainers. Um, not every show has to be uh, extremely uh, relevant to have a message. Um, let's just have... Um, you know, as Cheryl says in the chat room, let's just have some fun. And this, I thought it was, uh, it was not a show for me, I have to say, but it was um, everything I think that people who are 
not as familiar with with Broadway as we are, um, uh, who think of a Broadway musical, haven't had a chance to see one, experience one. And I think they think of it as uh, very colorful, filled with music and some of them songs that they know, um, lots of dancing, some laughs, and some star power that, that, that energizes the whole thing. And this production of Music Man has all of that. And I think it's going to entertain uh, a lot of, of, of people. And I don't think that they should feel um, ashamed for enjoying it. It's an enjoyable uh, entertainment. I wish it, it, it just had a little more depth. I wish that both um, Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman had, um, uh, particularly Hugh Jackman, had gone into character more um, and played to the audience less. But the audience loved being played to. And they uh, they adore him, and he is adorable. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, to wrap up this morning, Michael, you uh, you saw the next generation of musical theater royalty, Sam Gravett at uh, Birdland. So tell us about how. What did you think? Yeah, last Monday the 7th, he did his uh, first ever solo show at Birdland um, in the big room upstairs, and it was absolutely sold out. Um, both of his parents were there, I'm happy to say, uh, Debbie and Bo Gravett. And I had, as I mentioned, I had met Sam just in passing some years ago at uh, NJ Pack when Debbie did a concert there, and he was you know, just in the audience with his dad and I think maybe one of his siblings. Uh, but now he, um, and I also mentioned that he, uh, uh, somewhere along the line, he earned a degree in anthropology at Princeton, uh, but he um, has decided to go into the family business, as he puts it. Uh, and it was a really great, very exciting show. Uh, he had a wonderful group of musicians with him. Uh, the title of the show uh was i guess the only thing i would criticize just because it wasn't exceptionally accurate it was called songs that raised me and he talked about you know his parents record collection and there always being music in the house etc cetera, etc cetera. but i would say only about half of the song in the show uh fit that category um and so uh you know it, it might have the t title might have been a little more accurate but i don't think people really care that much about things like that um the song stack was all over the place stylistically and some people might some people might object to that also but it certainly did uh show sam's versatility because he opened with come fly with me uh the sinatra song but then the rest the rest of the program included everything from an appalachian folk song um, to uh, say it somehow, that beautiful duet from The Light in the Piazza, which he performed with Soleil Pfeiffer. Do you all know that beautiful soprano? Mm. Uh, they did a gorgeous job of that. Um, also, uh, Sam sang Finishing the Hat. 
and then he did do uh, his mom's big number, the, the, the number that arguably won her a Tony Award uh, from Jerome Robbins Broadway. He sang Mr. Monotony. Uh, the Irving Berlin song, which had been cut from so many shows. And um, you don't often or hardly ever, at least I don't hear a man sing that. So that was great. He did a wonderful job with it. Um, he uh, sang a, an original song that he wrote during the pandemic, which was really lovely. And um, one of the most amazing parts of the evening was he did a little song cycle I would say about maybe about 12 or 15 minutes long, uh, a a cycle of three or four little songs written by his musical director, Jake Landau, and it was called Coin Toss. And the uh, the idea of it was that uh, a man, in this case, a gay man, is um, going to toss a coin to help him decide whether or not he should send a very emotional text to his boyfriend. Um, I'm not sure if it was a text or a social media message, but uh, one of the two. And uh, it really was really very well done. Uh, Not the kind of thing you expect to see in a show like this, but I think the audience absolutely loved it. So um, bravo to Sam, really. He, uh, his voice is so malleable and and so versatile and he seemed very at ease on stage a couple of moments of nervousness but only in passing and um it doesn't hurt that uh he's as someone else put it ridiculously good looking uh (laughs) so i think he yeah i think you're gonna hear from him he's he's currently as i as i I think I mentioned uh, playing Fiero in Wicked. Uh, so a lot of Wicked people were there, uh, which was, so it was nice that it was on a Monday night. Uh, so they were able to attend and they came out in force for him. And there were lots of, um, uh, you know, industry, uh, well-known people in the industry there. So I, I think it was a great launching pad. And I, I think we can all look forward to seeing what his career holds in store. All right. So uh, there was uh, Sam's thing was just one night at Birdland on March 7th. Uh, and we'll keep our eyes open for the next thing that uh, Sam brings us around. But uh, obviously you can uh, get over to the Gershwin and catch him uh, eight times a week. So, all right. So uh, before we I, wrap up. I was just going to say, I just Googled him and Michael's right. He's ridiculously handsome. <laughs> Well, now I'm going to have to. He's almost like something that like someone would draw, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah. Is he uh, like one of the, uh, the, the classic, uh, good looking people from, um, uh, from Hollywood, Hollywood central casting type of thing. Yeah. I mean, very, uh, square jawed, uh, look quite, you know, uh, uh, he's he's not slight. He's he's uh, a, a, you know a, a bigger guy, but like really well. I don't want to go on. <laughs> you'll, yeah. you, you'll you'll see. So no, the uh, oh yeah, that that's ridiculous. She shouldn't. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. that's not right. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, or, or should I say, it's like looking in a mirror. Wow. <laughs> I think they've gotten. I think they've gotten um, a few of those guys to play Fiero. Uh, yeah, they, they seem to cast that role very well in that regard. <laughs> Although the first one was Norbert, uh, which was a little yeah. maybe you know sort of a different way to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Norbert's very talented. He is very yeah. talented. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, Jan has been bringing up our anniversaries and, uh, an anniversary just passed by, uh, before we wrap up for the morning. I didn't know mm. if you guys had a few words about our two year anniversary of the shutdown of Broadway, anything that you wanted to, to bring up. It seems just, uh, impossible actually that two whole years uh have, have have gone by and about 18 months of um with no theater and uh uh i you know i remember uh the day that uh march 12th of uh, 2020 um when we got the news um i had seen um the night before a show um uh, Ars Nova's Oratorial for Living Things, which uh, down at the Barrow Street Theater, and it's coming back actually uh, this coming uh, week. And I was sitting there, and I was feeling really uncomfortable. And and the next day, I was supposed to go see Michael Friedman's Unknown Soldier, and mm. I called and I said, "I'm I'm sorry, I I just can't come." And later that day, um, all theaters, or at least all places with audiences over uh, 500 people uh, were shut down. Uh, I think the thing that I remember the most about that night uh, of March 11th was seeing uh, William Wolfe, who was the former head Mm. of the drama desk. Yeah. Um, He and his wife, Lillian, went to everything. Um, he was in his 90s and uh, they went, I always saw them at the theater and they came uh, into the theater um, uh, uh, down at the Barrow Street. And I was looking over at them and I thought, wow, I hope I have that kind of stamina when I'm 90 going out to this little production and so on. And within two weeks, COVID had taken him. Yes. And and he was the first of um, you know of the losses uh, 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 that we uh, suffered um, within um, less than a month. Uh, a friend, I'd lost a friend, and it was it it, it, it it's already beginning to recede. Um, people are coming out to uh the theater they're they're being um for the most part respectful wearing mask um uh you know there's hope that we are finally emerging from this but it's just incredible that it happened Hmm. michael any thoughts yeah, I have been thinking about it a lot, especially lately. Uh, I, I thought about it a lot when I went to see Anyone Can Whistle at Carnegie because I was thinking back, not not, not that long, um, to all those 
months and months of deprivation mm-hmm. uh, for both the audiences and the performers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just people having their entire lives pulled out from under them for mm-hmm. such a long period. And uh, I, I think anyone who listens to this podcast uh, will agree that it's always exciting to go to the theater. Um, but now it's like tenfold because uh, you, you do remember, uh, you know, all, all those, all those months of deprivation and, it's uh, and, and even if it's a small, intimate situation, like when I was at the Cherry Lane the other night for Coal Country, um, it, it's still exciting. But to be in a you know in Carnegie Hall with twenty eight hundred other people, uh, just absolutely who love being there and and don't want to be anywhere else and are so into the show and this incredible communication coming from the. Uh, well, between the, the really the audience and the performers, mm. there's just there's just nothing like it. Um, one thing um, I did want to bring up uh, that I th- is related to this. Uh, I'm sure everyone heard recently that it was announced that Pamela Anderson is going into Chicago as Roxy Hart. <laughs> and this news has been received um, in various ways by various people. But uh, the reason I bring it up is I've mentioned before that right before the pandemic, um, Emma Pittman had won the uh, competition, the, the search for Roxy. Uh, this was a very well-publicized competition, you know, with the talent search uh, all over the country and maybe the world uh, for someone to play Roxy. They, they, the producers of Chicago had decided they wanted to do that in the way it's been done before for other shows like Greece, that, that Greece revival and, mm. and, and uh, sound and music and in Great Britain, et cetera. Um, so, and Emma who went to Wagner college uh, just graduated just a few years ago. Uh, my alma mater. Um, she was just about to start in Chicago when the pandemic hit. Mm. So I had been wondering what, you know, what was going to happen with that when the show came back. But the other day um, uh, on Facebook, she posted today marks two years since the announcement of the search for Roxy. Holy cow, two whole years. I've had so many people reaching out to me recently about my dates for Chicago, and I feel terrible telling them I still don't have an answer. When the pandemic hit, they shifted my initial dates into the future, and at the moment, they are still unconfirmed. But the truth of the matter is they are dealing with so many more variables here, especially with Miss Rona still running around. Um, Although there are so many elements out of my control, I am training my body, voice, and mind in preparations for this role whenever chicago is ready for me i'll be there well so i finally reached out to um the production through the press agent uh on wednesday and i emailed them and asked them if you know there's any update on this any statement and i got no reply so i emailed again on friday and i got no reply um so i do not know if uh, the producers of chicago are going to try to pretend that the search for roxy never happened um, uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of difficult to do that. Uh, the whole point of it was publicity for the show. Uh, and so I don't know. Um, I don't know if they do plan to put Emma in 
or when, and maybe they'll make a statement or maybe they won't, uh, or maybe she'll just be announced soon. But I did want to mention that and something for us all to keep an eye on as to whether that happens or not. What's been uh, most amazing to me is the comeback of theater and the flexibility of the entire community and everybody jumping back in. We saw in Town the last couple of days that T. Oliver Reed went as one of the fates and that Amber Gray came back <laughs> to, to <laughs> fill in because they uh, they were so short-staffed and she's in the middle of another show right now. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, Amber Gray came back on, was it Friday evening or oh, Rob wow. Johnson in the chat room? When did Amber come back? Anybody know? Um, I think it was Friday evening for just one show or so. Yeah, wow. I think so. Yeah. Wow. That must have been exciting. <laughs> so, yeah. Friday and Saturday, Rob saying. So, uh, yeah. And uh, to Oliver Reed playing the fates. And so it's the resiliency in the community of Broadway and theater worldwide. Uh, we see uh, – I, I don't even know how people are doing this. I saw this morning – that there was uh, a bunch of uh, a, a theater company in uh, in the Ukraine that was that was performing in the subways uh, for people wow. just to pass the time, uh, and th- th- this is this is what theater people do. Exactly. All right, so let's wrap up for today. As I mentioned before, uh, Peter's going to be back with trivia next week but mike will have a musical moment in a second but before we do that i want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us on apple podcasts there's many ways to listen to us iHeartRadio, radio tune in stitcher google play anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts you can find broader radio's offerings contact information for jan for michael and for me can be found in the show notes at broader radio as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today if you want a transcript of this or any episode of on broader radio please email transcripts at broaderradio.com and include the episode names so that we can send you back the right transcript so michael what do we have in the musical moment? Well, our opening music was a tribute to Johnny Brown, who recently died, uh, born June 11th, 1937, died March 2nd, 2022. Uh, most of our listeners probably know him uh, for his role of Superintendent Nathan Bookman on uh, the <laughs> 70s CBS sitcom Good Times. Uh, I didn't watch that show, but I knew him uh, from when he was a regular cast member on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. So I've known him since he was, uh, well, since I was a child and since he was at the start of his career. Um, His Broadway credits, uh, in uh, only two. Um, The first one was Golden Boy in 1964. And that is our musical moment. Johnny in that show led a song called Don't Forget 127th Street. Um, and so that, that you can hear him uh, on that and uh, that cut that we're including for you here. And his uh, it's interesting, his only other credit in 1968 was a, a, a show called Carry Me Back to Morningside Heights, uh, 
So I guess he didn't move that far from Harlem to <laughs> to Morningside Heights <laughs> as far as those two shows. But he did a, a tremendous amount of TV work, um, as you can see, if you look him up. And also he was the father of Sharon Catherine Brown, who is currently the standby uh, for the role of Caroline in Caroline or Change. And her other, uh, which is interesting because, of course, the, the main, the, the actress who, you know, who played the role, uh, 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 and I'm sorry, the show is closed now anyway, mm -hmm. but uh, the actress who played the role was another Sharon, Sharon Clark. But yeah, Sharon Catherine Brown, whose other uh, Broadway credits include Head Over Heels, Dream Girls. I saw her years ago as the narrator in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat in 1982. And she was, um, uh, I guess, a child performer in Maggie Flynn in 1968. So um, uh, just tribute to that uh, family and, and uh, condolences for the loss of Mr. Brown. Um, and our closing music... Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Andrew Garfield's performance of the beautiful song, Why, the beautiful Jonathan Larson song, Why, from Tick, Tick, Boom. I thought uh, this week we would feature the cut from the original off-Broadway cast recording with Raul Esparza so that you can savor the bridge of the song, which, as I mentioned, uh, for some reason was cut from the movie. I think it might have been more for technical reasons than anything else. Um, but it's a beautiful song and a beautiful bridge. And I think it also speaks to uh, this discussion we've just been having about uh, the feeling of loss during the pandemic and how uh, and why people in theater do what they do. Uh, some some people do it just because they have to. They can't really do anything else. And I think that's what why is about. And so please enjoy Raul Esparza singing the beautiful music and lyrics of Jonathan Larson in this incredibly emotional, beautiful song. All right, so that wraps it up for this week. On behalf of Jan Simpson and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 And let's go fly kite Over and over and over Till we got it right When Emerged from the YMCA Three o'clock sun Had made the grass Hey I thought, hey What a way to spend a day Hey What a way to spend a day a vow right here and now I'm gonna spend my time this way when I was 16 Michael and I got parts in West Side at White Plains High three o'clock went to rehearse in the gym Mike played Doc who didn't sing fine with him? We
we sang Got a rocket in your pocket And the Jets are gonna have their day Tonight over and over and over Till we got it right When we emerged Wiped out by that play Nine o'clock stars And moonlit the way I thought, hey What a way to spend a day Hey, what a way to spend a day I made a vow I wonder now Am I cut out To spend my time this way With only so much time to spend Time I'm given Have it all Play the game Some recommend I'm afraid It just may be Time to give In I'm 29 Michael and I Live on the west side of Soho and why? 9 a.m. I write a lyric or two. Mike sings a song now on Mad Avenue. I sing, come to your senses. Defenses are not the way to go. Calls, I'm on my way. I think, hey, what a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I make a vow right here and now. Time this way.